Turn back with me now to the book of Genesis. You can have that open in front of you. The passage we read earlier, Genesis chapter 11, verse 27 through to 12, verse 9. Uh, And finally today, after a few delays, I'm glad to finally be starting this series with you, which will take us a few months, probably up to the summer, uh, to go through the life of Abraham. And we're thinking today in our first study about Abram, as he was at the time, Abram called by God. Abram called by God. Who is your father? Most of us can answer that question very quickly. Uh, Boys and girls, many of you are sitting here today beside your father. Uh, Some of you who are older, your your father isn't alive anymore, but you knew him when he was alive. You you cherish his memory. You're, You're thankful for him. Some of us perhaps know not just who our father is, uh, who our, but who our grandfather is or who our great-grandfather was. And maybe you've done the research and you know uh, what your great-grandfather did and where he lived and, and so on. Uh, most of our fathers were not particularly famous men. Uh, looking around the room today, unless I'm much mistaken, I don't think any of you have celebrity fathers. Uh, but in fact, if you're a Christian today, you do have a father, a, a spiritual ancestor who is world famous. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 4 verse 16, that for those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ, Abraham is the father of us all. That's what Paul says. Abraham is the father of us all. The promises God made to Abraham, the faith Abraham had in those promises, and the fulfillment of those promises in and through Jesus Christ, They connect us to Abraham. They make us sons of Abraham. Abraham is without doubt one of the most significant names in world history. The three most influential religions in the world, uh, Christianity, Judaism and Islam, they're, they're sometimes lumped together as the Abrahamic religions because they all claim a link Uh, in some way to Abraham. But as as Paul says there in Romans 4.16, Abraham is our father only truly if we share his faith, a faith that ultimately rests in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I wanted to read from John chapter 8 there that Jesus connects himself to Abraham and he says that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. That ultimately the promises that Abraham had faith in, Jesus says, they are fulfilled in me. That's why the New Testament begins in fact. And we thought about these words a few weeks ago. uh, The words of Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. Uh, The New Testament begins with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that's Matthew giving to his readers particularly his Jewish readers, giving them his grounds for claiming that Jesus is the Messiah because he is the son of Abraham. There is no way that Jesus could have claimed to be the Messiah were he not the son of Abraham. And Matthew says, of course, that he is, that he is the fulfillment of the promises in which Abraham placed his faith. And friends, it's because Abraham was called to live a life of faith that he is deserving of our study and interest. If you're a Christian today or become a Christian today, 
you're also called to live a life of faith. Faith is described in Hebrews 11 as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Everybody has faith in something, even those who claim to have faith in nothing. We put our faith in all kinds of things all the time. But the question is, is our faith in Jesus Christ, the object of the promises made to Abraham? We need faith because we haven't yet seen all God's promises fulfilled. Yes, Jesus has come to the earth. He lived without sin. He died in the place of sinners on the cross. He rose again. But we're, st- we're still waiting. <coughs> we're still waiting for the return of Jesus. We're still waiting for our physical resurrection. For the new heavens and the new earth. And so we still need to live day by day with faith as Abraham did. And so one of the reasons that so much of Genesis is devoted to the life of this man Abraham is to show us a great example of what it means to live with faith. Not as we'll see that Abraham lived perfectly or had perfect faith, but nonetheless there are great lessons for us to learn uh, in our life of faith as we look at Abraham. And so that's why I've entitled our study over these weeks, Abraham, the, the faith of our father. And that faith of Abraham, of course, begins today, as we'll see, with God's call. Abram called by God. The call of faith. And so I want to think about three aspects of this call to faith that God made to Abram as he was in Genesis 11. First of all, I want to think with you today about the, what I'm calling the just because of God's call. The just because of God's call. And I'll explain what I mean by that in due course. Genesis 11 verse 27 says, Now these are the generations of Terah. And every time you see those words in Genesis, these are the generations of. That's a marker for you that we're entering into a new new part, a a new uh, chunk of the book of Genesis. These are the generations. And so we have here Abram's family background. His father was Terah. He had two brothers, Nahor and Haran. And he had a nephew, Lot, who was Haran's son. Haran, we're told, dies very young. He dies before his father. Uh, And meanwhile, Abram marries Sarai. And Nahor marries a woman called Milcah. And we're told that this family originally lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. It's mentioned there in verses 28 and 31 of Genesis 11. And we actually, because of the archaeologists and historians, we know quite a bit about this ancient city of Ur. It was excavated by Leonard Woolley and a team in the 1920s. It's located in what's now modern-day southern Iraq. And in the time of Abram, Ur and, and the civilization of that whole region, it had already existed for hundreds and hundreds, if not a thousand years. It was a modern, wealthy, civilized, technologically advanced city. Uh, The archaeologists have found evidence in that area of a highly developed urban culture, which included a library, infrastructure, and even a civil service. So we need to be careful that we don't have what's sometimes called chronological snobbery, that we just assume that 4,000 years ago, everybody was just sitting in a cave doing not very much. These amazing ancient civilizations, uh, sophisticated Cities built, temples built, libraries built. And that's where Abram 
lived. At the very centre of the city of Ur was a large, this has all been uh, discovered in archaeological work, there was a large temple complex dedicated to the worship of the moon god, a god called Nanar. Uh, and as well as that, there was a ziggurat, which was a large tower. You might, mem- you might remember when we looked at the Tower of Babel, I told you that the Tower of Babel was most likely a ziggurat tower. Uh, a ziggurat had seven platforms going up and up and up. And each of the platforms had a terrace. There might be, uh, there might be hanging gardens on the terrace. And on the very top platform, uh, you were up, so to speak, in the heavens, up in the sky. And that was where you would worship your idol, your God. You would sort of commune with the gods. And so that was Ur, a modern, prosperous, also a commercially thriving city. But as I've mentioned, also a city that worshipped other gods. Not the true God. The creator God, the God who had sent the flood and who scattered the nations who arrogantly tried to build the Tower of Babel. And friends, this, this was Abram's homeland, his birthplace, his world. And it's very, very important for us. Please don't miss this this morning. Abraham did not grow up in a godly home. Abram didn't grow up with his father leading family worship each day to the true God of heaven and earth. If they worshipped at all, Abram's family would have worshipped the moon like everybody else in the city of Ur. And if you want evidence for that, just listen to the words of Joshua 24 verse 2. This is Joshua speaking toward the end of his life to the Israelites settled now many years of course after Abram's day in the land of Canaan, the promised land. Listen to what Joshua said to them. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. They served other gods. Friends, Abram did not call upon God. God came calling to Abram. Abram did not call upon God God came calling to Abram. And that's why when we get to that call in chapter 12, verse 1, we are reading about an act of sheer, undeserved, unearned grace on the part of God. That was my original title for this point, the sheer grace of God's call. Look what it says in Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. As simple as that in one sense. God simply speaks to this pagan man living in a pagan household, in a pagan land. He simply decides, God simply decides to love this man, to be gracious to this man, to change this man's life. That's what we call grace. And friends, it simply cannot be fully explained. You come to a point and you say, God shows grace just because. God calls people just because. Recently in our house, uh, child one has occasionally started asking that one word question that parents have to sometimes have a lot of patience for. Why? 
Why can't we have ice cream at 11am on a Tuesday morning? Uh, why are there, well, our child hasn't asked this. Maybe your child has asked this. Why are there only eight planets in the solar system? Why not nine or 10 or 15? Why this? Why that? And sometimes as parents, you get to a point and they're asking why, why, why? And all you can say is just because, just because. The sky is blue just because. There are eight planets just because. And when it comes, friends, to explaining why a mighty, holy, perfect, independent, sovereign, eternal God would choose to call and to save and to bless the, little, the life of sinful little pagan men and women who have wanted nothing to do with him, who have been building their silly little towers and worshipping their silly little idols. In a sense, friends, the answer is just because. God loves us. God calls sinners because he wants to. God does it because some way, somehow, he gets the glory from it. Just remember what has happened up until now in the book of Genesis. I mentioned it already earlier. God makes the world and everything in it. And by the way, he didn't do that because he was lonely. God the Father, Son and Spirit had always existed Co, uh, those three persons in the one Godhead, co-eternal, co-existent. God was not lonely, but he makes the world, he makes it perfect and everything good. And then the sin of Adam and Eve comes into the world. And God eventually destroys the world with the flood. He gives Noah and his family that second chance for humanity, scatter, multiply, fill the earth. And then we arrive in Genesis 11, And mankind isn't scattering. Mankind is disobeying God all over again with the Tower of Babel. God didn't need to have anything more to do with sinful humanity. He had given them every chance. And they continued to turn away from him. And yet here he comes calling. In the life of one particular pagan man in Ur. And he says, I will bless you. I will make your name great. It is sheer grace. And if you're a Christian today or become a Christian today, you need to realize that for you too, God has shown you sheer grace. There is nothing else that explains God's love for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He hasn't chosen any of us based on our skin color Or our bank balance, whether that bank balance is much or little. Our educational achievements, whether those educational achievements are few or many. The family you were born into, whether it's a respectable family or not. The Bible says elsewhere in Ephesians 2, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. He has called you. He calls you today. Just because, just because he's a God of grace. And we are as undeserving in 2023 of God's call and his love as anybody in Abram's city of Ur was in 2000 BC. People are caught up in our day in pride and the distraction of our luxuries and our entertainment, our achievements. The assumption is we don't need the creator God We can just worship our own little gods like they were doing up the tower in the city of Ur. 
Or else people are getting anxious and stressed about the health crisis or the political crisis or their own personal crisis. But they don't turn to God in their crisis. They don't acknowledge God. Again, just like it was in Ur. And yet, friends, God, by his spirit and by his word and in his grace, is still coming and calling in the lives of men and women and boys and girls today, showing sheer grace. And so it's so important as we begin our studies in the life of Abraham that we see this, and particularly that we make this clear to our children. I sometimes worry that stories like Abraham just get butchered when they're told to our children. Boys and girls, it's not that Abraham was the best person on earth, that he was just being really good and everybody else was being really bad. Boys and girls, God chose Abraham out of nothing that Abraham had done himself, but just because God decided to love him. Same way he's decided to love you and me. If God is graciously calling you today for the first time, if you're listening to that call for the first time today, don't ignore him. It's gracious of him to call you at all. Do not harden your heart. So the just because of God's call. Secondly, the promise is attached to God's call. The promise is attached to God's call. Uh, The focus is not really on when exactly uh, or even how exactly God called Abram. Uh, we, we were left to assume that maybe this was through a vision or a dream as God spoke to other people in the Old Testament era. We're not even told when exactly it was. Um, if you read what Stephen says in Acts chapter 7, it seems that God called Abram before Terah took the family out of Ur. Uh, chapter 12 verse 1 of Genesis doesn't actually specify the time. We are told, however, that when God called Abram, he made him seven astounding Wonderful promises. Seven promises. In chapter 12 verse 1 God says that Abraham is to go to a land that I will show you. That's the land of Canaan. He doesn't give any more details about it. But he promises Abraham I will show you the land. I will give you the land. Second promise in verse 2. I will make of you a great nation. A great nation? This man who is 75 years old, his wife is 65 years old. And Genesis chapter 11 verse 30 couldn't be much more blunt when it says, Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Abram and Sarai have been living with the pain of being unable to bear children. Surely now you would think at the ages of 65 and 75 they're not going to bear children. And yet God doesn't just promise them one child. He says, I will make of you a great nation. Generation and generation will come from, that, from Abraham. The third and fourth promises that God makes. Verse 2. I will bless you. Just notice the emphasis here. I will do all these things. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. The word blessing in Genesis often has to do with fruitfulness, prosperity. Uh, And yet, humanly speaking, that's exactly what Abram would be leaving behind if he went off by himself, just him and Sarai and whoever else to the land of Canaan. He would be leaving his father's house and all the prosperity and security that came with that. Yet God promises, promises him, I will prosper you. You don't need your father. You don't need 
the city of Ur or Haran and the opportunities that those cities give. I will bless you. I will prosper you. And as well as that, he says, I will make your name great. Unlike those fools at the Tower of Babel who come together to try and make a name for themselves. God says, I will make your name great. The fifth and sixth promises are in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you, I will curse. That's God's promise of protection. Uh, And the word curse there is stronger than the word dishonor. So if anyone does anything to Abram, God will do far worse to them on Abram's behalf. And so God promises to protect him. What a comforting promise that would be as they head out to this unknown land. Uh, following this God who has only just spoken to Abram for the first time. God says, I'll protect you wherever you go. And then the last promise uh, in verse 3, and this is sort of like the, the crowning promise of them all. He says in verse 3, In you all families of the earth shall be blessed. And Abram couldn't possibly have imagined all that those words entail. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But we're beginning, we, we, we've seen much of the evidence of, of that blessing as we look back through the history of the Christian church. The covenant promises made to Abram, fulfilled in Christ and offered through Christ to the nations. They're going out through all the world and through every generation. And it all started here with Abram. One writer says, Abram will be the funnel through which blessing comes to the world. Imagine that funnel and it, it it directs the water down and it decides where the water goes. So you imagine uh, Spelga Dam and all the water that's kept up in that dam and it's piped down to the homes in the areas uh, in the wider region. Well, Abraham's like that. Uh, he's that system by which, he's that funnel by which blessing flows out to the nations and to the generations to come. And so seven promises, friends, that could be summed up in this way, that God is promising Abram a place. He is promising him people. He is promising him protection. And he's promising him a program of blessing for peace. A place, people, protection, and a program of blessing. And I've moved through them relatively quickly there, but I really can't overstate to you how crucially important These words of promise are here from God to Abram. As I said, Abram is a a towering figure in scripture because of these promises and because he believed them by faith. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 11 devotes 12 verses to Abraham compared to just one or two for most of the other people listed in that chapter. Paul says in Galatians 3, 7, it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And we've thought about that already today, uh, the reading in John chapter 8. Paul goes on in Galatians 3 verse 9, Abraham was the man of faith. Abraham looked forward in time to these promises being fulfilled. Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. That is the day when the promises would be fulfilled. And we, in a sense, look back and forward. We look back at what Christ has done at the cross at the fulfillment of all of God's grace and blessing to us. And we look forward in Christ also to the the future inheritance that he's promised for us. Resurrection, new heavens and new earth, redemption of our bodies as well as our souls. 
So friends, all of these promises that God made to Abraham, they are fulfilled and extended to us in Jesus Christ. God said that all families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. The New Testament declares God so loved the world. All kinds of people, all kinds of places that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him, the son of Abraham, should not perish but have eternal life. Friends, when God calls us, his call comes with astounding, amazing, gracious promises. And ultimately what they amount to, friends, is that God is promising us life instead of death. That's the contrast that I think Moses, the author of Genesis, wants us to see here between Abram and his father Terah. We don't know all the details about Terah. We don't know why he left Ur, <clears throat> why he headed for Canaan, uh, whether, this was, whether he had heard uh, Abram's call from God and sort of began to go with him or not, we don't know. But whatever happened, he ended up staying in this place, Haran. We have to assume that he liked it there. We, perhaps business opportunities were plentiful. Perhaps he got very comfortable there. He liked the lifestyle. He liked the culture. He liked the worship. Friends, Terah dies along with his son Haran outside the land of God's promise. Abraham journeys on and lives inside the land of promise. The call of God leads to life. Rejection of that call leads to death. Life and death are set before you today. What are you going to choose? Are you going to believe or are you at the moment believing the empty promises of the world that all the things you can see and touch and buy and experience right now, that that is all you need and that that will satisfy your heart? As much good food and drink as you want, as much sexual license as you want, as much entertainment as you want, as much comfort as you want, enjoying your sins and your pleasures as Terah did in Haran. Friends, it leads to death. It's just dust slipping through our fingers. God's call demands your faith and it leads to life. It leads to blessing. A place to call our own, the new heavens and the new earth. A people to be a part of, the people of Jesus Christ, the church. The protection of God and the blessings of God, a promise upon us forever. Which will you choose as God comes calling you today? So we've seen the just because of God's call. We've seen the uh, wonderful promises attached to God's call. And thirdly and finally, I want to think about Abram's response to God's call. And Abram, of course, makes the right response. And it's the response of faith. Just look at chapter 12, verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Wonderfully simple. God tells him to go, and Abram goes. Simple, wholehearted faith and obedience. But I want you to notice, friends, how Abram's faith here expresses itself in a very practical way. Uh, And this is a lesson, of course, for us in how we respond to God's call with faith. That faith has to be lived out, it has to 
be put into action, so to speak. And so how does Abram put his faith into action? Well, notice the direction of Abram's feet, first of all. The direction of Abram's feet. Verse 4 says that Abram departed from Haran and he goes to Canaan, the land promised to him by God. And in so doing, Abram, friends, was going in a direction that was demanding and difficult. For one thing, Abram was turning his back, literally, on his family and the allegiance and the inheritance that came with that. Back in chapter 11, verse 32, we're told that Abram's father, Terah, lived to the age of 205. This is coming towards the end of the era when human beings lived for those greater lengths of time. And if you do your sums in in Genesis 11, you realize that Terah lived for another 60 years after Abram left him. In that culture, loyalty to your family and to your land and to your inheritance were Perhaps the top priorities in your life. It was the strongest possible bond. And Abraham has just cut it. And he's, and he's cut himself off as well from the security that might have come from growing up in Terah's house and taking on Terah's inheritance. Not only that, but look what we're told in verse 6. When Abraham arrives, <coughs> arrives in Canaan. Verse 6 says, At that time... The Canaanites were in the land. Again, I think sometimes we have to be careful when we imagine, maybe it's just me, but when we imagine Abram, you know, we we maybe just think of him just strolling on in there and just empty green fields everywhere you look and uh, a land just to do with whatever he likes. Now again, Canaan, full of people, full of pagans, full of kings and cities and temples and farmers and everything in between. Do you think they're just going to Take kindly to Abram coming in saying, this land is my promised land from a God you've never heard of. It's daunting for Abram to walk into this land. A childless 75-year-old man with very little with him. We're told he has some people and possessions and so forth. But he has nothing in Canaan to call his own. And yet notice the encouragement. I think this is so encouraging. Verse 7. As Abram begins to move through this land full of Canaanites, pagans. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. There's God's grace again, friends. There's no new information there. That's just God choosing to encourage Abram. Abram has obeyed. He has walked. He has taken his feet in the direction of faith. And God gives him a little encouragement along the way. He says, don't worry about all these Canaanites you're looking at. I will give this land to your offspring. So there's Abram's faith in action. His feet go in the direction that God commands. But then the other thing to see about Abram's faith in action, it's, it's expressed, his faith is expressed through the worship of his hands and his mouth. So his faith is expressed in the direction of his feet It's also expressed in the worship of his hands and his mouth. Look at verses 5 to 9. They describe Abram passing through the land of Canaan. Uh, And various places are mentioned here. Shechem, the oaks of of Mamre or Moray, verse 6. Bethel and Ai, the Negev and so forth. Uh, And and you might read that and think, well, Abram's just sort of wandering around here. You know, he's just going for a walk and seeing what he sees. But... Uh, There's nothing aimless about Abram here. He's actually being very intentional. 
Uh, These place names tell us that he's moving from the north of the land, which is where he first crossed the border, down through the land to the south. What he's doing is he is getting acquainted with the land God has promised him. He's he's having a look at it. He's, He's taking it all in. It's like if you bought a house and you go from room to room, you, you look in the cupboards, you run your hand over the walls, you, you measure floor space, you're, you're getting familiar with your future inheritance. That's what Abram's doing here in Canaan. But as well as that, just notice how he marks his journey. In verse 7, after God speaks to him at Shechem, what does he do? He built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And similarly, when he pitches his tent between Bethel and Ai, verse 8, there he built another altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram, of course, is living long before the days when God's people would worship him in the tabernacle or the temple, those permanent places of worship. But what he does do is he builds an altar to worship and offer sacrifice to God. That's what an altar was for. It's for offering sacrifice, whether animal sacrifice or uh, the, the sacrifice of crops, whatever it may be. Verse 8 says, he called upon the name of the Lord. This is public worship, friends. The Canaanites might be in the land. And they might feel very confident and content that it is their land. Dedicated to their gods and their beliefs. Abram and his family might be the only ones in the land of Canaan worshipping, offering sacrifice to the true and living God. But they do it nonetheless. They do it nonetheless. And these are the things that mark a journey or a life of faith. Feet going in the direction that God has pointed. Hands and mouths offering worship and service to the God who has called us. This is exactly what Jesus taught us, Matthew 10, 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, Jesus says. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What Jesus is telling his friends is that sometimes walking in the direction of faith, putting him first in our lives, it will look a a, a shameful Weird, self-defeating exercise, at least in the world's eyes. That's what Abram's life looked like. What on earth is he doing? Why is he leaving his father and the rest of his family to go off with his elderly wife to a land that they have no claim on whatsoever, humanly speaking? The Canaanites would have been looking at him thinking, who is this weird old immigrant worshipping a God that has never been worshipped in this land before? Of course, Hebrews gives us the answer. Hebrews 11, verse 9. By faith, Abram went to live in the land of promise. And likewise, friends, if God has called you, if he is calling you today, if he has said to you as a Christian, go away from your sin, or if he has called you to go away from mum or dad or from stable employment, a respectable job for the sake of the gospel. If God has called you to go away from your idols, away from what the world applauds and celebrates and endorses, then you must put your faith into action. 
believing in the salvation of Jesus Christ and the far better inheritance that lies ahead for those who belong to him. The Canaanites are in the land still today. They're worshipping their little false gods of money and sport and pleasure and my identity and my rights. But do your feet go in the direction that God has pointed? Do you lift up your hands and your mouth each day in worship and service of the God who has called you and made promises to you and has a greater inheritance for you? God calls you today and he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is not just our saviour, he's also our forerunner in the faith. He's an even greater example to us of living with faith than even Abraham was. Because Jesus has faced even bigger obstacles than Abraham faced. The shame and suffering of death on the cross. But Hebrews 12 verse 2 says of Jesus that for the joy set before him he endured the cross, despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. So knowing all the obstacles that stood in his way knowing the direction that his feet were going to have to take him, Jesus Christ endured. And Jesus Christ looked ahead of all of that to the joy of heaven and to the promises of Abraham being secured for his people. So is Abraham your father in the faith today? Are your feet walking in the direction God has commanded you? Are your hands and your mouth worshipping and serving the God who has called you? By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Amen.